0: Hello, and welcome to the Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout. Each week we explore classic sci-fi from the atomic age and beyond. I'm your host, Brad Grahowski, the voice of Brad.com. This week we continue with chapter two of Flight of Tomorrow. Written by Henry Beam Piper, originally published in 1950 in the popular science fiction magazine. Science Fiction Stories. Let's continue our story. Flight from Tomorrow. Chapter 2. It was broad daylight when he woke, and there was a strange throbbing sound. Kratzka lay motionless under the brush where he had slept, his blaster ready. In a few minutes, a vehicle came into sight, following the road down the mountainside. It was a large thing four-wheeled with a projection in the front which probably housed the engine, and a cab for the operator. The body of the vehicle was simply an open rectangular box. There were two men in the cab and about twenty or thirty more crowded into the box body. These were dressed in faded and nondescript garments of blue and gray and brown. All were armed with crude weapons—axes, billhooks, long-handled instruments with serrated edges— and what looked like broad-bladed spears. The vehicle itself, which seemed to be propelled by some sort of chemical explosion engine, was dingy and mud-splattered. The men in it were ragged and unshaven. Rodska snorted in contempt. They were probably warriors of the local tribe, going to the fire in the belief that it had been started by raiding enemies. When they found the wreckage of the time machine, they would no doubt believe that it was the chariot of some god and drag it home to be venerated. A plan of action was taking shape in his mind. First, he must get clothing of the sort worn by these people and find a safe hiding place for his own things. Then, pretending to be a deaf mute, he would go among them to learn something of their customs and pick up the language. When he had done that, he would move on to another tribe or village able to tell a credible story for himself. For a while, it would be necessary for him to do menial work. But in the end, he would establish himself among these people. Then he could gather around him a faction of those who were dissatisfied with whatever conditions existed, organize a conspiracy, make arms for his followers, and start his program of power seizure. The matter of clothing was attended to shortly after he had crossed the mountain, and descended into the valley on the other side. Hearing a clinking sound some distance from the road as of a metal striking stone, Hradska stole cautiously through the woods until he came within sight of a man who was digging with a mattock, uprooting small bushes of a particular sort, with rough gray bark and three-pointed leaves. When he had dug one up, he would cut off the roots and then slice away the root bark with a knife, putting it into a sack. Radska's lip curled contemptuously. The fellow was gathering the stuff for medicinal use. He had heard of the use of roots and herbs for such purposes by the ancient savages. The blaster would be no use here, and was too powerful and would destroy the clothing that the man was wearing. He unfastened a strap from his belt and attached it to a stone to form a hand loop. Then inched forward behind the lone herb-gatherer. When he was close enough, he straightened and rushed forward, swinging his improvised weapon. The man heard him and turned, too late. After undressing his victim, Rodska used the mattock to finish him, and then to dig a grave. The fugitive buried his own clothes with the murdered man, and donned the faded blue shirt, rough shoes, worn trousers, and jacket. The blaster he concealed under the jacket, and he kept a few other hundredth-century gadgets. These he would hide somewhere closer to his center of operations. He had kept, among other things, a small box of food concentrate capsules, and in one pocket of the newly acquired jacket he found a package containing food. It was rough and unappetizing fare. Slices of cold-cooked meat between slices of some cereal substance. He ate these before filling in the grave and put the paper wrappings in with the dead man. Then his work finished. He threw the mattock into the brush and set out again, grimacing disgustedly and scratching himself. The clothing he had acquired was verminous. Crossing another mountain, he descended into a second valley and for a time lost his way among a tangle of narrow ravines. It was dark by the time he mounted a hill and found himself looking down another valley, in which a few scattered lights gave evidence of human habitations. Not wishing to arouse suspicion by approaching these in the nighttime, he found a place among some young evergreens where he could sleep. The next morning, having breakfasted on a concentrate capsule, he found a hiding place for his blaster in a hollow tree. It was in a sufficiently prominent position so that he could easily find it again and at the same time unlikely to be discovered by some native. Then he went down into the inhabited valley. He was surprised at the ease with which he established contact with the natives. The first dwelling which he approached, a cluster of farm buildings at the upper end of the valley, gave him shelter. There was a man, clad in the same sort of rough garments Ratska had taken from the body of the herb-gatherer, and a woman in a faded and shapeless dress. The man was thin and work-bent, the woman short and heavy. Both were past middle age. He made inarticulate sounds to attract their attention, then gestured to his mouth and ears to indicate his assumed affliction. He rubbed his stomach to portray hunger. Looking about, he saw an axe sticking in a chopping block and a pile of wood near it, probably the fuel used by these people. He took the axe, split up some of the wood, then repeated the hunger signs. The man and the woman both nodded, laughing. He was shown a pile of tree limbs, and the man picked up a short billet of wood and used it like a measuring rule to indicate that all the wood was to be cut to that length. Razga fell to work, and by mid-morning he had all the wood cut. He had seen a circular stone mounted on a trestle with a metal axe through it, and judged it to be some sort of grinding wheel, since it was fitted with a foot pedal and a rusty metal can was set above it to spill water onto the grinding edge. After chopping the wood, he carefully sharpened the axe, handing it to the man for inspection. This seemed to please the man. He clapped Hradska on the shoulder, making commendatory sounds. It required considerable time and ingenuity to make himself a more or less permanent member of the household. Horatska had made a survey of the farmyard, noting the sorts of work that would normally be performed on the farm, and he pantomimed this work in its simpler operations. He pointed to the east, where the sun would rise, and to the zenith, and to the west. He made signs indicative of eating, and of sleeping, and of rising, and of working. At length, he succeeded in conveying his meaning. There was considerable argument between the man and the woman, but this proposal was accepted, as he expected that it would. It was easy to see that the work of the farm was hard for this aging couple. Now, for a place to sleep and a little food, they were able to acquire a strong and intelligent slave. In the days that followed, he made himself useful to the farm people. He fed the chickens and the livestock, milked the cow, worked in the fields. He slept in a small room at the top of the house under the eaves, and ate with the man and woman in the farmhouse kitchen. It was not long before he picked up a few words which he had heard his employers using and related them to the things or acts spoken of. And he began to notice that these people, in spite of the crudities of their own life, enjoyed some of the advantages of a fairly complex civilization. Their implements were not handcrafted products, but showed machine workmanship, There were two objects hanging on hooks in the kitchen wall which he was sure were weapons. Both had wooden shoulder stocks and wooden forepieces. They had long tubes extending from the front and triggers like blasters. One had double tubes mounted side by side and double triggers. The other had an octagonal tube mounted over a round tube and a loop extension on the trigger guard. Then there was a box on the kitchen wall, with a mouthpiece and a cylindrical tube on a cord. Sometimes a bell would ring out of the box, and the woman would go to this instrument, take down the tube and hold it to her ear, and into the mouthpiece. There was another box from which voices would issue of people conversing, or of orators, or of singing, and sometimes instrumental music. None of these things were objects made by savages, These people probably traded with some fairly high civilization. They were not illiterate. He found printed matter indicating the use of some phonetic alphabet, and paper pamphlets containing printed reproductions of photographs as well as verbal text. There was also a vehicle on the farm, powered, like the one he had seen on the road, by an engine in which a hydrocarbon liquid fuel was exploded. He made it his business to examine this minutely and to study its construction and operation until he was thoroughly familiar with it. It was not until the third day after his arrival that the chickens began to die. In the morning, Muratska found three of them dead when he went to feed them, the rest drooping unhealthily. He summoned the man and showed him what he had found. The next morning, they were all dead, and the cow was sick. She gave bloody milk that evening, and the next morning she lay in her stall and would not get up. The man and the woman were also beginning to sicken, though both of them tried to continue their work. It was the woman who first noticed that the plants around the farmhouse were withering and turning yellow. The farmer went to the stable with Horatska and looked at the cow. Shaking his head, he limped back to the house and returned carrying one of the weapons from the kitchen, the one with the single trigger in the octagonal tube. As he entered the stable, he jerked down and up on the loop extension of the trigger guard, then put the weapon to his shoulder and pointed it at the cow. It made a flash and roared louder even than a hand blaster, and the cow jerked convulsively and was dead. The man then indicated by signs that Horatska was to drag the dead cow out of the stable, dig a hole, and bury it. This Horatska did, carefully examining the wound in the cow's head. The weapon, he decided, was not an energy weapon, but a simple, solid missile projector. By evening, neither the man nor the woman were able to eat, and both seemed to be suffering intensely. The man used the communication instrument on the wall probably calling on his friends for help. Horozka did what he could to make them comfortable, cooked his own meal, washed the dishes as he had seen the woman doing, and tidied up the kitchen. It was not long before people, men and women who he had seen on the road or who had stopped at the farmhouse while he had been there, began arriving, some carrying baskets of food. And shortly after Horozka had eaten, a vehicle like the farmer's, but in better condition and of better quality, arrived and a young man got out of it and entered the house, carrying a leather bag. He was apparently some sort of a scientist. He examined the man and his wife, asked many questions, and administered drugs. He also took samples for blood tests and urinalysis. This, Rodska considered, was another of the many contradictions he had encountered among these people. This man behaved like an educated scientist, and seemingly had nothing in common with a peasant herb-gatherer on the mountainside. The fact was that Hradska was worried. The strange death of the animals, the blight which had smitten the trees and vegetables around the farm, and the sickness of the farmer and his woman, all mystified him. He did not know of any disease which would affect plants and animals and humans. He wondered if some poisonous gas might not be escaping from the earth near the farmhouse. However, he had not himself been affected. He also disliked the way in which the doctor and the neighbors seemed to be talking about him. While he had come to a considerable revision of his original opinion about the culture level of these people, it was not impossible that they might suspect him of having caused the whole thing by witchcraft. At any moment, they might fall upon him and put him to death. In any case, there was no longer any use in his staying here, and it might be wise if he left at once. Accordingly, he filled his pockets with food from the pantry and slipped out of the farmhouse. Before his absence was discovered, he was well on his way down the road. We hope you've enjoyed Flight from Tomorrow, Chapter 2, written by Henry Beam Piper, narrated by Brad Grahowski. For more information about Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout, visit thevoiceofbrad.com spaceman. If you are enjoying Gentleman's Spaceman's Atomic Hideout, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. The Gentleman Spaceman's Atomic Hideout is written, produced, edited, and performed by Brad Grahowski. We leave you with a moment from Chapter 3 from next week. Then, without warning, He hurled the water into the policeman's face, sprang forward, swinging the bucket by the bale, and hit the man on the head. Releasing his grip on the bucket, he tore the blaster, or whatever it was, from the holster. One of the workers swung a hammer, as though to throw it. Rodzka aimed the weapon at him and pulled the trigger. The thing belched fire and kicked back painfully in his hand, and the man fell. Thank you and journey well among the stars.